to you live from Race City, USA. It's Blind Spotting, the NASCAR podcast from a fresh, personal, and blue collar take. Race reviews, race previews, the latest news, and more. And now, your hosts, Michael Colbert, Andrew Coates, and Travis Sherry. All right, welcome back for another exciting week of blind spotting. It's been two weeks since our Sean Woods interview, but we are coming back strong again this week with Lenny Miller. Lenny Miller is an acclaimed author and part of a very successful family, uh, an African-American family, who owned a race team back in the 90s, and he has written a book, Racing While Black, How an African-American Stock Car Team Made Its Mark on NASCAR. Uh, that book has been out in hardcover for several years, soon to be released in paperback, and you can find it online as well. Amazon.com, great place to find the book. And Lenny is going to be calling in and joining us tonight, and we are so excited to have him on, and we're going to talk about just a wide variety of topics. I've heard some interviews from him before. He's been on C-SPAN, he's been on PBS, he's been worldwide, and uh, quite a personality, and uh, this is something that we've really been looking forward to. So thank you for joining us for episode 30 of Blind Spotting. After the interview, we will take a quick look back at Texas, at the uh, the two series that raced for points, and then also the All-Star race as well. And then we'll look ahead and see what we can predict for Nashville. Let's talk about what we might see, what we might not see. And I'm sure we will probably talk about Kyle Larson. <laughs> Good gracious alive. That man is just uh, on another planet right now. So thank you for being with us. We're going to do the interview with Mr. Miller. And then uh, stay tuned afterwards for our Texas review and our Nashville preview. So We'll see you in just a few minutes. But before that, I want to say welcome back to Andrew Coates, who's been out of the country down in the Maldives. Did you have a wonderful time? We did. It we looked did. like you did. It was a great time. It's good to be back, though. Did you get laid while you're down there? Or is that something you just they just do in Hawaii? I don't know. What, oh. Uh, <coughs> Andrew, you thought I was going somewhere else with that, didn't you? No, L-E-I-D. No, I yes. did not. They, that is definitely Polynesian. But we did have um, we did have a good time. Watched a lot of cricket, actually. Oh, okay. And uh, some of the Euro... Cup football. Yes, yes. Uh, it but, looked uh, lovely. It looked, the pictures. It looked like paradise. I mean, it was it, it the whole did. the whole island was maybe a half mile, a quarter mile, actually a quarter mile long. The whole island. And uh, for those who don't know, the Maldives is a, a country of about five hundred islands out in the middle of the Indian Ocean and uh, pretty near the equator. So it was every day. the The forecast was eighty eight degrees and partly cloudy. <laughs> that was every day. <laughs> and Travis, how has how have things been going for you, sir? Uh, things are good. Just, uh, you know, I was the only one here last week because you were at scout camp and Andrew was traveling the world. So, you know, somebody yeah. somebody had to hold the, we appreciate the, the town here. of Mooresville down. Well, I'm, I'm <laughs> glad you were here to do it. We, we appreciate that. The, the fine folks of Mooresville do as well. So anyway, just want to catch up with those guys. And uh, without further delay, our interview with Mr. Liddy Miller. Once again, welcome back to this week's episode of Blind Spotting. It is episode 30, and we have the honor and distinct pleasure of being joined this evening by Lenny Miller. Lenny Miller is the author of Racing While Black, How African American an African American Stock Car Team Made Its Mark on NASCAR. And just we kind of got uh, hooked up with Lenny on Twitter. Uh, we had posted something, and, and Lenny had responded to it. I'm like, you know, that's something that we don't know a lot about we don't we're not educated enough on on that to really speak about it and it's an area that 
I think most people would be interested in that, that need to know more about. So we reached out and, and we've set something up. And, and Lenny, thank you so much for being on with us tonight. It was so great to have you. Okay, thank you for uh, having me. Well, let's just, let's get right into it. And you're calling us from Virginia. Uh, just reading your bio, it's exciting to me. I wanted to ask you about this right off the bat. You actually, in addition to being involved in racing uh, years ago, you are a commercial airline pilot, which is just fascinating to me. Can you tell us, uh, just kind of walk us back through your background, including, you know, uh, we'll get into the racing of plenty, but um, how did you become a pilot? Where did that interest come from? And uh, just kind of walk us through that. Yeah, so it came through uh, racing, uh, and so to speak. So when I was uh, a teenager growing up in New Jersey, uh, Lawrenceville, New Jersey, which is out between Trenton and Princeton University, my father had entered an Indy car in 1972, uh, Indianapolis 500, the driver, John Mailer. So it was a, it was a black owned Indy car team mm-hmm. and a white, white driver, John Mailer, who was supposed to, the plan was to coach Benny Scott, an African-American road racer who at the time was in formula a wrote, which was a road racing, uh, McLaren M 10, a V eight powered Chevy, you know, 190 miles an hour. Right. Uh, Watkins, Glen, Lime Rock, Riverside, all of that at that time. And then my father entered uh, a car in the first Long Beach Grand Prix, which was Formula 5000, which is similar to Formula A. Raced against Mario Andretti, uh, Al Unser, Viceroy sponsorship, Jody Schechter, David Hobbs are in that race. So I grew up with racing. So in 1976, this aviation, this African-American aviation group called Negro Airmen International wanted to hear my father speak as a keynote speaker at the Trenton Mercer County Airport. And I would say 50 or 60 people were there, all pilots, African-American private pilot. And about 20 or 30 planes flew into the airport where my father was going to speak. And that's where I got close to airplanes, looked at those airplanes that day after my father spoke, met some of the African-American private pilots. There was one Tuskegee Airman there. His name was Bob Griffin. And he was also the first African-American flight engineer in the U.S. Air Force. Oh, interesting. And then he said, um, hey, if you're interested in flying, come over to Robbinsville, New Jersey. The airport's still there. It's just a single strip, um, similar similar to like Concord Airport. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I went up for an intro ride and liked it. And again, I grew up with racing. I had go-karts, recreational go-karts when I was a kid, childhood friends. And I said I'd be interested. So my father says, well, I'll pay for the private pilot's license. And then my mother got involved, said it was too dangerous. You're not doing that. <laughs> you need to do better in your grades at school, which I thought my grades were okay. I was doing my homework. And then she <laughs> and then she put the kibosh on the whole thing. <laughs> Moms can do and that. <laughs> it, yeah. And then my father was a uh, he has a A type personality. So we're in the living room, you know, the room that no one ever goes in unless it's important or guests are in there. <laughs> he, did, he didn't say anything, so I watched my whole career 
the go-kart and the airplane just went up in smoke. <laughs> so I didn't start flying until after college. I mean, it's Morehouse College right. in Atlanta. Mm. My first job was with Pizza Hut by design. Every I had friends there going to New York, Wall Street, all these fancy jobs. You know, Atlanta, Charlotte, where the banks are. And like, why do you, why do you want a Pizza Hut? Because I thought I would be interested in owning a Pizza Hut franchise oh. and then over my lifetime have dozens of franchise spread across multiple states. And I got this idea from when I was in Atlanta, there was this group that owned 130 Arby's franchises huh. and he had a jet and because these franchisers in like nine different states. Right. So I said, I'm going to do the same thing. So I started taking flying lessons at Peachtree to Cab Airport in Atlanta. And I'm talking to the flight instructors. I'm like, why do you guys flight instruct? Because you don't make a lot of money. And then if it's raining for a whole week and the students can't fly, you don't even right. draw any pay. So they said, well, we're, we're building up time to go to the airline. So I said, you can do that? Like, I thought you had to go to the Navy or the Air Force. They said, well, that's one way to do it, but you can do it this civilian route. And, you know, you get the commercial rating, instrument, multi-engine. So that's when I made a career change, and I was good at flying. And I said, I think I could I can do it. And then I moved back home at the time in Pennsylvania with my parents and then my mother kind of said, you know, you can give it a try. And then I drove a Frito-Lay truck oh, in wow. Philadelphia in bad urban areas. I mean, I can't I can't believe I did it and didn't get robbed or something because <laughs> my plan was to have that job specifically to take every penny and put into my flight ratings at the airport. And I'm back in Trenton, New Jersey now at that airport. Right. My parents let me live at home rent-free at 20, I'm in my early, mid-20s. And then I went from zero flight time to the airlines in five years. Wow. wow. So I, I flew, uh, once I got my flight ratings, I did some instructing, and then I flew single pilot IFR in a Cessna 310R out of Pottstown, Pennsylvania, into upstate New York, Kalamazoo, Michigan at night. So Monday through Thursday night through the wee hours, like I didn't get home till four o'clock in the morning. And then I flew with two regional airlines over a two plus year period and then to the tenth of the major airlines. So the aviation progression is the same as racing. So mm. you start out in a go-kart, you start out if you're on Formula Ford, if you're in Formula Racing, NASCAR, you start off with a Legends car or street stock, work your way to late model stock, try to get into the trucks. It's the same progression. It costs time, money, uh, doing it the way I did it without going to the Air Force. Same setbacks, um, right. and, and it's, it's, very, it's very similar. Well, that's amazing. So that's, you, so that's you were, how, yeah, that's how I started. Yeah. And that's how I got started with the aviation. But my father raced a, a Volvo P1800 in the 60s. He actually drove that car to work. But the car, <laughs> nice. the car, the, the engine was balanced and blueprinted, radical for the street, but still legal. And he did it for fun on the weekends. Then he went to a 55 Chevrolet station wagon, six cylinder. It was a Corvette six cylinder from the first vet. 1953. Wow. And they ran in a stock class. And then they went to a B stock class with a 1969 Yanko Camaro. And then my father got the idea of, hey, let's try to get an African-American driver in big time racing. And he decided to go road racing. And that's when they went into the Formula A, Formula Super V. 
Formula 5000. So I grew up as a kid in high school, middle school through high school with all that big racing. And I've been to Road Atlanta, Lime Rock, Watkins Glen, Pocono. Uh, mm-hmm. Trenton Speedway was still up when oh, I was yeah. a kid. So NASCAR would come through. Modified, Northeast Modifieds would run at Trenton and Pocono. You know, I had all the autographs from all the drivers and the Indy car side. I still have the autographs from the 70s from Richard Petty, Cale Yarbrough, all those, all those drivers. That's fascinating. It, it was pretty obvious reading the book that your dad was a, you know, not only just because of what he did as a, as a driver and, you know, those experiences that you, you've just talked about, but it seemed like obviously had a pretty big impression on your life as a whole, right? I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, co-owning with your dad and, and, and the book, just so our, our listeners know, is, is called Racing While Black, subtitled How an African-American Stock Car Team Made Its Mark in NASCAR. Hardcover, paperback, you can find it online as well. You know, in speaking with your dad, you and he seem to have a pretty uh, pretty amazing bond. Tell us what it was like for the two of you to sort of go out and, and become owners in, in the late models and then trying to, to work your way up in the NASCAR ladder. Yeah, so yeah, so we, um, at first, um, you know, growing with the road racing, I really liked that um, and in the early 90s, we put some proposals out, do like Toyota Atlantic, you know, Indy Lights, go to Indy. And as you guys know, by the time you get into the late 80s, early 90s, NASCAR started to take off. I mean, really take off. Right. So we would go to the handful of corporations to propose road racing or Indy car racing. They didn't even, they literally didn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. They only wanted to hear NASCAR. Mm-hmm. So my father, you know, we, we know racers around the country. We have eyes and ears everywhere. And then the promoter of the Sunoco Race of Champions, Joe Gerber, the Sunoco Race of Champions was a Northeast Mod- NASCAR Northeast Modified Championship race sponsored by Sunoco. Uh, and it was at Pocono annually. And it used to be in Trenton, like, speedway in in the 70s he said hey got a black driver at agawam speedway in massachusetts like in street stocks and he, he wins races he's at the right age he was like 19 and my father went up to take a look at him and met him and then we started pitching him to companies and then trying to figure out which route to take and then we quickly learned that we had to go down to north carolina and then my father enrolls, his name was Chris Wood. So he's in, right. he's in the book. So my father mm-hmm. enrolls him in a Buck Baker driving school with Buck Baker. He was still there. Uh, this, this is the 1990, at Rockingham. Is that Rockingham, North Carolina Motor Speedway? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So it's Rockingham. And I went down for it one of the days and looked at him. And then Buck Baker says, oh, he's got talent. He's coachable. He can do this. You know, and it always gets down to the money. Right. So then we finally got Chris down there uh, in 1993, 94. We had to get him a job. He never really interviewed. <laughs> like, right. like he worked as car dealer in Massachusetts. There's so a scene. Down, like, I have yeah, to interrupt to you. There's, you describe an amazing scene of seeing him in his first suit. He forgot his tie. You had to go get him a tie. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> I'm talking to strangers. I'm like, <laughs> but I was, I was comfortable growing up with my parents. I mean, I, I think I'm sophisticated. I'm comfortable for, with all types of people of all walks of life. And I'm just comfortable. So I just want to achieve this goal of getting Chris. He's got to get settled in the Charlotte area. Mm-hmm. So we find, so we finally, so we finally get him a job. And then, and I describe all this in the, in the book. So he's working at, um, Ford, Ford, right? yeah. Yeah, Lexington, North Carolina. 
Driving and a then, Chevy. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was ridiculous. All these conflicts. So then, as I meet this gentleman, Tom Cotter, Cotter, Cotter Communications. So he was on Hudspeth Road, that's right near to Charlotte Speedway. Mm-hmm. Walking this Daryl Waltrip shop. It was right there. Western Otters crossed the street. Right. So I just I see an article about him in a magazine. I say, hey, Tom, this is what we're trying to do. This is who I am. Can I come down and talk to you? It looks like you're tied in with sponsors and companies. So we, we come down and then he directs us, you know, you guys need to start out at Concord. You know, there's uh, Ernie Irvin was up there. Jack Sprague, I think, was still there when we started racing he was like starting to go over into the truck series like maybe the first year like 95 96 right then i met the furs that owned the track so henry and yvonne fur they were happy to see us i told them what we're trying to do and so we got race shops on the property here's a driver which i describe in the book he's from wisconsin everyone and everyone all over the country is like descending on charlotte i mean from california all over the right place. it was almost like hollywood everybody's coming to hollywood trying to be an actor <laughs> <laughs> so so he's getting divorced this one gentleman that's at has a shop at concord so he wants to sell the car. He's got a, it was a late model sportsman. He was running it at late model sportsman. It's the only difference between a late model stock and a sport sportsman was the engine. And this is a non NASCAR track. So they're running a um, dry sump. The only things like dry sump and some other odds and ends are a little bit different. And then I just felt comfortable with the furs and they gave us support and we got the shop bought the car and father and I are just using our funds like everyone else use your own. And I, and this is before I was married. So I could stroke checks without other <laughs> eyeballs looking at it. <laughs> I, I, and then, you know, father and I are racers. So you start getting the fever. Like you start, you're yeah. down in North, you're down there in North Carolina and it's like a place we want to be. And you're, you're meeting people and there's reactions, you know, I describe in a book, especially be, being like, no one knows who you are. Then you show up uh, being an African-American at first. Everyone takes like a double take. Right. They're, they're right. like, you know, you guys know what you're doing or getting into. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting how, how you you describe in the book about the desk, the front desk staff at the Hilton getting to know you and just saying, y'all would kind of be crazy to come down here and and do this, you know, with all these kind of good old boys and everything. And I, I just, a, it's a fascinating scene throughout the book as you kind yeah, of get to yeah, know so them. My, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a culture. It still exists. It's a cultural divide of two different worlds. Mm-hmm. So, and again, my father and I, we're fish out of water and we're unique. We're, we, we know both worlds. Like we know the African-American world. We know the mainstream white world we know the blue collar world we know the hoity-toity wine and cheese world we know where everybody's coming from and then we respect all these people from their, their mindsets and their point of view and we know how to navigate it naturally without being threatening or smart alex or we just and, and it's very unique and like you just pointed out in the book there was African-Americans that live up the street from Concord, and there was a black college up there called 
Barbara Scotia. Barbara, Barbara Scotia. Scotia. Yep. yep. Barbara Scotia. So we went there. I think I described that in the book. We went there one day just to tell them who we are, what we're doing at Concord. And they're like, well, what's we know the Charlotte Speedway because right. we see that on TV. They said there's a speedway. I think it's Route 601. But and so I drive by. I didn't know they were racing cars. They don't even know that the track it's is there. there. Mm-hmm. And they're like five miles away. And then the people at the Hilton, at the University Hilton, of course, they know where the big speedway is up the road mm-hmm. on 2029. 20, but they're like Concord. They don't know like Hickory, Concord, any of the short tracks. They don't even know that they exist. Right. And then they don't think they're welcomed. And all the stereotypes and all the perceptions come out. And they don't even know what's going on. Right. I thought it was interesting, Lenny, how you talked about um, you were in the box I think it was at Concord, and and you talk about looking out over and seeing the other two black people in the crowd, <laughs> you know, just to, and it paints that picture of, you know, people who are newer to NASCAR today. While it's probably as diverse as it's ever been, and but still has a long way to go. Just twenty five years ago, it was still almost exclusively a white sport, and you really oh, paint yeah. a nice picture of that, saying, you know, here I am getting weird looks from people in these boxes. And then I look out in the crowd and there's only, there was one thing that really struck out, stuck out to me. Uh, you mentioned one friend I think you had who was a black gentleman and married or married or dating a white woman and they would sit in different rows. So people didn't think where they were together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I, I just, you know, that, that, that was just heartbreaking, right? I mean that it's some, you know, in not so distant past that, that people didn't feel like that even just going to enjoy an auto race, they didn't feel like they could, they could kind of be who they are and who they were. And, and, uh, you know, you talk about one of, uh, one of the drivers, you know, uh, was interested or had a white girlfriend and they got weird looks and, and that wasn't so long ago. Uh, and, and oh we'll, yeah, yeah. And it, it's changed. It's gotten a little better. I don't think it's a hundred percent. It's a lot better than it was every decade. It get that, that, that it just takes better. time. Yeah. It just takes oh, time. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you have to have exposure to, uh, all these different worlds. Um, but the African American community doesn't have exposure to a lot of different worlds. Sure. Sure. It just does stuff for many complex reasons and, and cultural reasons. And if you even bring up that you're racing or doing something where there's not any black participation or not, they look at you like you have two heads. Like, why mm-hmm. do you want to do And then you can look at aviation, too. I mean, there's just not a lot of black pilots. You're, you're into you're into one percent. <clears throat> you're not into 10, 20, 30. It's one yeah. percent or or less um racing and and there's a lot of cultural issues with that so if for sure if you talk if you talk about aviation even so if you take a a african-american family especially if they're college educated they don't want to send their kid to the navy or air force because hey you're going to get killed you're going to go to war right why don't you go to law school or medical school Hmm. um Mm -hmm. and and so they they steer it a different direction and then in a a blue collar class african-americans they don't they still shy away from skilled trades so if you go welding which you can make a lot of money welding definitely be useful on a race car they don't have the welding skills plumbing skills carpentry skills fabrication skills everything you need on a race car right and then you have a cult social cultural element so if you're going to race 
whether it's grassroots or at the Cup Series, that's 24 7 year round. Right. So, uh, um, your typical average African American woman. She wants to be going to the movies on Saturday night. You right. can't say you're going to be in the shop. <laughs> and, and, right. and, and then got to load the tractor trailer up to go to California and race and then come back a week later to Charlotte. It's just not going to happen. Sure. So that's and I'm, I'm so glad you're answering these questions because there's a lot of things that are bubbling up in my mind as you're describing this. And as, you know, three white guys, we don't. We don't know the answers to these. So that's interesting. The the racing, and I wanted to ask, is it by choice? Is it, you know, but you've answered some of that. It's just, it's mainly just the culture. It's uh, it's just not something that's embraced by many in the African-American culture like it is in the white culture or, and then you're starting to see some Latino, Hispanic influence or influx into the sport as well. That's really interesting that you... I. And these are just things. That's why we're so looking forward to this interview because there's a. I know that there's a bit of a of a wall there, you know. Uh, and as you described and as you've mentioned, if you've got folks coming in to interview for a job at the shop, it would be unusual to see an African American walk in to apply for that job in a race shop. But I always wondered why is that? Why aren't there more? walking in is it because they don't feel like they're going to get the job or it's just not a job yeah that it's just, interested there's just in? not a lot yeah there's just there's just the numbers aren't there there's always a handful when i say a handful from coast to coast like yeah. there's not any and it's because again it's that the skills the skill sets aren't there to apply and there's only going to be there's only going to be a few and then racing as you guys know if you start out with a bandolero go-kart legends even at that level there's a cost there yeah mm-hmm. so now sure. if you're going to run a legends car i'm not sure what it would be but i know it's you could spend 10 20 grand or more a year if you're going to run the thing every week and the African American family doesn't have that disposable income to start their kid at mm. five, 10, 15 years old at that level. And then we're back to the Saturday night again. Right. But and, the and ones it's not that... just Saturday night, it's a Legends car is like a cup car. If you're going to win, yeah. you're going to be working on that car every night. <laughs> but get but ready the, for families that, the families that do have the means. They're encouraging their kids to go do the doctor, the attorney. The, That's that, right. Okay. And you okay. mentioned so, that. So, yeah. So if you take, and then if you take like my father, he's still around. He's, he's in good health. He's 87. Wow. So he was a car, a real car guy, like a teenager in the fifties. He was, a, he was a member. He grew up outside of Philadelphia. He had a 1944 hot rod. He would subscribe, read Hot Rod magazine, or just coming out on the newsstands. Then he was a charter member of Barris Customs, which George Barris designed the Batmobile for TV, right. the, the car, all of that. But he he couldn't, being an African-American at that time, and he's coming out of college in the late 50s, he couldn't get a car dealership like Rick Hendrick or Penske and then start building up an automotive empire because you just couldn't do it at that time. Right. Then right. back to what you just stated about send a, an African-American uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class kid, parents sending them to medical school. There are 
African-American car dealers now. Some of them have, they're not as big as Hendrick, but they got four or five dealers. They're millionaires, but they have no interest in racing. Right. Mm-hmm. So and, they're and, like, well, why, why are we going to race 34 races? It's hot. It's loud. We just want to go to Italy on vacation with our private jet. We don't need to do that. Right. And we're, and we're, and we're not interested in it. And, and you're, I think you mentioned at some point, both, both close friends and family of yours were kind of like, why are we spending all of our money racing? We could be, you know, living a little more of a, a, a lifestyle, a bougie lifestyle, right? As opposed yeah, to yeah. you guys taking all of our savings and house down payments and stuff and trying to put a car around Concord Motor Speedway. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then my father and I being real car people and racers, well, we're just like, all the other racers and probably like you guys, we like the smell of the fuel, mm-hmm. the sound, yep. what it takes to prepare a car, which a lot of the casual, any casual fan, they really don't realize the work that goes to prepare a car. So if you don't, if you don't appreciate how to, what it, what it takes to prepare a car, you can't really fully appreciate the race. People right. just look at, well, the car is going round and round. Why are they doing that? <laughs> well, if you know how hard it was to prepare the car, you would look at the race a little bit different. And you guys had one car, one engine. You know, I mean, you go through in the book how you wreck it and that's it. You know, if it's, yeah. you know, and you may have to sit out multiple weeks till you can pay to fix it. And and then you guys got a, a uh, the nice engine from uh, WNL, W. I can't remember R&W, the R and W. R and W. I knew there was a W yeah. in there, and yeah. uh, and that you know you guys paid twenty five thousand dollars for it, and that was the that was the race motor, you know. Yeah, and we tried. We we which I describe in a book. We're always my whole focus was the corporate sponsorship right. and getting more money. Mm-hmm. We had talked to we went to Randy Earnhardt before we went to R and W because we had a there was, there was a drag racer. Wally Bell that was next door to us at Concord. He said, well, I know Randy Earnhardt, Dale Earnhardt's brother. He's automotive specialist. He builds engines in Concord. And we did shop around and talk to other folks in North Carolina. But my father knew his name was Ron Whitney in Pennsylvania. He can build all types of classic car engines and racing engines. He did a lot of some sprint car engines, road racing engines. So we started with him because we were we knew him for many years and we were comfortable. My father and I were never concerned about developing the relationships and allies, which we did in, in North Carolina. We just needed more money. Yeah. And we focused on the money i mean and and i knew that when we walk into these shops yeah you're going to get some funny looks here and there but over several months and a few years i was confident we're going to build allies in north carolina to help us race all the way up to the cup level wasn't worried about that um and then the, the the southern states because of the history get a bad there's a bad stigma because of the history of the country. So you got slavery, you got right. civil rights, all this stuff, bad, you know, down south, especially up through the 60s and 70s. But if, from our experience coming from up north, we went to Flemington Speedway, there's speedways up upstate New York, um, New England, California. It's the same people at those tracks as it is in North mm-hmm. Carolina, Alabama, Texas. It's more of a skilled trades, blue collar, hardworking racing 
group, but the southern states get it because of the stigma. It gets a bad rap right. when the same group. And I grew up in Flemington, New Jersey, at a dirt track, five eight mile dirt track, with New Jersey people at the track is the same. Uh, you're going to have the same effect, the same environment in an African-American walking into it all white as you would in North Carolina or anywhere else. No, no dissimilar to golf in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And even yeah. when Tiger Woods started, right? I mean, predominantly white sport, Not in, in, and even if that person doesn't have a bone of racism in their body, you're just not used to seeing somebody come yeah. in, right? I mean, it... it yeah, uh, Travis, you had a question? Yeah, I read in your bio that there was this 10-year, I think it was a 10-year plan where the Miller Racing Group would start at the bottom and work their way, hopefully eventually, to the Cup Series. But in 2005, you guys won a track championship, and then you and then you stop. Was that because of sponsorship? Was it because of you were burned yeah, out? Of, yeah, no spot, no sponsorship. Okay. We just were tapped out. We had the Dr. Pepper 2001-2003. So the Dr. Pepper that my father and I negotiated, mm-hmm. that was $1 million over three years for late model stock. So there's a $300,000 budget we had in from 01 to 03. That was nine hundred thousand. Then there was another hundred thousand for expenses and traveling and, and all of that, and and we got it. And this and this is this is on the other thing. Like you read the title of books is Racing Wild Black, and you guys read it. Some people would look at the title and say, like, I'm attacking the white people, white society. <laughs> right, right. Until you yeah. start getting into it. Yeah. But my mm-hmm. book, I tell it like it is. We had equally black executives in corporate America didn't step up to the plate when they had the authority to write checks and and get the job done. Wow. And what happened was when we lost to Dr. Pepper, we didn't really lose it. There was management change. Like you guys hear all these sponsors, like if CEO leaves and another CEO, right. go, well, we don't, we're going to cancel the racing program. We don't like it. Well, what happened was two black junior executives at dr pepper and one was from my alma mater morehouse college in atlanta he should know better (laughs) he he told he told my father i wasn't in this meeting he told my father and they were at charlotte at the speedway and i'm not sure if it was back with dr j had dr pepper who what there was a dr pepper sponsored car and they told my father and this is what we just discussed we're uncomfortable down here. We don't like it. Work can't. We don't understand racing. Cars going around. There's no one that looks like us here. We're canceling all the Dr. Pepper sponsorship, including your program, and we're going to take the money and we're going to put it into a Division Three football with HBCU colleges, and we're going to go to Grambling, go to the black football game, no more racing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring that up, Lenny, because I think one of the themes throughout the book, you're talking about how difficult it is at the grassroots level to secure funding. You're walking into these boardrooms, you put proposals together, you knew Bob, who knew Stan, who knew Billy, and then by the time it that you get around, those people have now changed, and then the replacement doesn't know who you're talking about, and you guys are constantly politicking, you know, pounding the pavement, that kind of stuff. 
for anybody that's doing that kind of grassroots racing, that's what it requires. But then if you add in the fact that you're trying to to break through a, you know, a, a color barrier, for lack of a better term, in a sport that, like you said, doesn't have a lot of African-American representation. Tell us a little bit about that, going into the boardroom, making the pitches. How much more of a disadvantage was it to be black than than your yeah okay so this is this is like this may be new to your ears too this is a trick bag <laughs> I, I tap i tap i tap into it in the book so so just to go real briefly <clears throat> like the history of corporate america if you start going back into the 60s mm-hmm. the civil rights era even with lyndon b johnson and then nixon he came up with okay we have to have affirmative action right. so black businesses are disadvantaged so we got to basically dole out businesses to qualified black businesses that are that are qualified and then it became like quotas and over the years it started getting political well we can't have quotas we just have you know african-american businessmen they have to like earn their way and all of this stuff and then starting in the 70s with affirmative action they would have these black executive jobs called vice president of public affairs Mm -hmm. by the time we got to the 80s it was vice president of minority affairs and community affairs then it became diversity yep now it's diversity and inclusion inclusion. so this is what happens so my father and i go in we'll get in front of the decision maker and some of these corporations are heavily involved in auto racing. Um, some are not uh, we went to the oil companies, uh, Exxon Mobil, Sunoco, their various companies from all over the country. So when we propose, Hey, we have this race team. We're African-American owners. You got an African-American driver. This is who attends the track. Uh, it's grassroots. There's not a lot of television at Concord. They did have a delayed TV. I forgot it was a cable channel in Concord at the time, and they showed it on like Tuesday night or something mm. like that. So you got eyeballs there, and then not a million people looking at it, but you have thousands or something like that. Soon as we say we're African American owners, or then the driver is African American. Oh, this isn't marketing. This is, this include, is this diversity. Is diversity. I said it's diversity in one sense, but if the diversity group in this com- company doesn't have a budget, they don't have a budget for anything, and they mm-hmm. don't have a budget for racing. It's marketing. We have a marketing plan. Oh, no, no, we disagree with you. I'm going to send you down to Shirley Jones down the hall right. to diversity and inclusion, and then we go talk to her or him, and they're, they're like, wow, this is interesting. You guys got a lot of nerve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're going phrase like yeah. an ass car. Um, and then in so many words, you guys are beyond my thinking. I'm oh, not going to. I'm not going to rattle the tree and lose my two hundred fifty thousand exactly dollar right. year job. And good luck to you. Right. And then we're out the door. And it would happen over and over again because those groups at least through our time through 2006 and i think i don't think they've changed they're set up for the company to have photo ops look good in the press dole out some donations to some black colleges and schools and community stuff but there's no 400,000 or 4 million or 20 million for racing right that it's in marketing 
um, and where the CEO has to sign off on that stuff. And, th- and that was happened to us over and over again. We would get we would get pigeonholed. Do you think that's just inherent racism or do you think they just didn't know what to do with you when you walked in? Did they? Yeah, they don't they don't know what to do. So what happens is when you get beyond the diversity representative and you talk to a decision maker, white decision maker that's beyond that. They'll tell us over over different companies they they would say, well, you know, we get more bang for the buck sponsoring an African American rapper, right? Or or some entertainment basketball player. or basketball. Right. Somebody had double Dutch contests like jumping rope, like in New York, and it doesn't cost as much. And you guys are in in front of an audience. Almost they're saying like if you're African American, you can't sell products at a white in a white audience mm, right. or at a track mm. NASCAR, and, and that's not true. No, that you know, just if you, that if you look, if you look at Tiger Woods, yeah, if you look at yeah. Tiger Woods, he got more white fans than he does black. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, in 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 the in the Williams sisters and tennis, right? And they got everybody. Mm. We would go down that road, and there were unknown quantities, so we're not celebrities. They look at our background, yep. they look at the resume, they look, they know my father entered a car in the Indy 500, but they're just like, oh, we just can't stroke the check for a million dollars or 10. You start talking about real money. They're not really sure that you can really do the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and someone who works in big corporate America, you're a commercial pilot. You you probably touched on it, seen it as well, is that the number one thing corporate executives want to avoid is risk. And when you walked in the door, it just screamed risk for a number of different reasons, not necessarily because you were black, but because like Michael said, didn't, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle it. And um, it, it worked against you. You know, um, I, I would imagine that, that if, a, if a white, you know, grassroots team walked in, it, it wouldn't be shoved over to the diversity, you know, executive in that case, right? It would be a yes or no, and then you right. go on your way. Right. But, you know, it, it, it's interesting how how that came came to be. I, I do want to ask you this question. I thought this was a very provocative thought. You talked about Willie T. Ribs coming down in 78, and you said in the book that it might have inadvertently set the integration of NASCAR back a few years. Would, would you care to expound on that at all? Um, I just say he had a chance to... Um, it's the sustainability again. Like mm-hmm. uh, Up until this point, like the Willie T. Ribs, he even went to Indy cars. He, yeah. he didn't have enough money and resources and, and he has a different type of personality he's very outspoken i don't right. know if he made a lot of friends <laughs> uh you know he's not dip, he's not diplomatic so he ended up being like a flash in a pan in nascar and never took a hold so that kind of held back the visibility of high visibility if he if he was there for a few years or more to get other folks you know interested yeah, that's all I meant, you know, by that. Gotcha. Going to follow up with that Andy Fusco, I guess it's Fusco quote where you where you said about he said in the 90s, NASCAR nation at large won't warm up to a driver of color until he or she reaches the winner circle consistently. We still haven't seen that 25 years later. Um I think obviously we'll we'll talk about Bubba here in a minute, but you know, being the sole African American competitor in NASCAR's top 3 series on a full-time basis. Um but you know, and he's running better this year than he's probably ever run. They're, that team's getting better, but we still don't have you know someone you know black or brown that's that's consistently winning. Do you still think that's 
that's the case in NASCAR that it, that for sustainability they're really going to have to sort of you know yeah, start winning yeah, races. And, yeah, that that would help, and they're going to need more. They can't just have a token one driver. They yeah. need to have starting at the grassroots level, the truck to Xfinity and Cup. They need to have five or more drivers at every level. Um, and I see that a long, a long way away. Yeah, um, just like with Hispanic drivers and female drivers, right? I mean. Yeah. For numbers, different reasons, there just aren't a lot of those. Uh, there's not nearly the size pool to pull from as there are white males. Yeah, that's, you know? that's yeah, that's true. Um, and that's 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 a problem. And then Bubba Wallace, I don't know. Like it's not. I'm not an insider. Have inside sure. information, so I don't know. We we know we all know he has DoorDash on the car, McDonald's, and some other sponsors. But is he really getting all the money and resources that he need? I don't know. Right. And then with Denny Hamlin, he's definitely sharp and proven mm-hmm. for sure. But since he still has to drive the FedEx car, can he pay enough attention yeah. mm-hmm. to the bubble? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot. Just like we yeah. talked about earlier, you guys know this stuff is twenty four seven. It is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Then you then you have then you have a celebrity owner, Michael Jordan. Now right. in the past, I know uh, was it was it uh, Reggie the the baseball player uh, Reggie Jackson? Yeah, Reggie Jackson. You even take. Um, uh, yeah. what was the the white football player? Oh, Dan Marino, uh, Terry Dan Bradshaw, Marino. and yeah, Terry, Terry Bradshaw, Bradshaw. Troy, Aikman. Troy Aikman. See those guys, they have money, but it's still They're goes not back. There, it goes back to Rick Hendrick and mm-hmm. Penske. Like Rick yeah. Hendrick, he's like like he, he's a teenager. He liked the racing. He was behind the mm-hmm. wheel of a car. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Penske. And to this day, they're in their older ages, and they still have the same enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for racing they did when they were teenagers. I think, Lenny, that's a fantastic point because you do need somebody to bankroll the check. But if the guy bankrolling the check or gal is not – so there's two things you can do with money, right? Uh, Well, the one thing you always want is return on investment. You can either get return on investment when it comes to dollars and cents, or you can get return on investment when it comes to other things like winning. But racing is not like owning a baseball team, right? You're you're not going to go out there and win 36 races, right? In fact, you're going to lose most of the times you roll off the grid, and you're going to have a lot of times where you come back with a hunkle piece of, you know, beat up piece of metal that's going into the trash heap. Unless you have that passion for racing, eventually you're probably going to get to a point, no matter how much money you have, that I don't think this is a good investment anymore, right? Because because it's not going to do what other things you could have put that money in to do. And unless you have that passion, you're not going to be patient enough with it to eventually get success potentially, right? So it's yeah, that's 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 a big void, like <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, like my father and I, I'll speak for myself. I mean, we got the Concord and the Chris Woods. I mean, I was excited about the whole thing, just being in North Carolina. Right. Mm-hmm. Like going to those shops and then like Brian Butler, Jericho Transmissions at the time were big deals when we were there like in the 90s. And I mean, you just want to go in there just to smell the parts. Right. <laughs> and see people weld, put stuff together. But I don't think, I'm not sure if Michael Jordan has that or not. And then if he's going to run the Charlotte Hornets and everything he does with Nike, I don't see him being in the shop 
And then Joe Gibbs, Joe Gibbs, when he came in and Joe Gibbs had a car interest back when he was young, right. even before football, he owned, I think it was two funny cars. He ran with the, with the Hispanic guys, Hendrick Don, what was the name? Uh, um, he, he had a couple NHRA funny cars for a year or two before mm-hmm. NASCAR. And I remember when he started his NASCAR shop, he spent like two months with the engine guys, two months with the rear end guys, two months with the fabricators. He learned all the parts, right. nuts, bolts, enjoyed it, still enjoys it. And his son, the late son, J.D. Gibbs, he was racing at Concord when we were there. Right. Um, so if you're not – if you don't have that kind of passion and want to be living in the shop – it's hard to be competitive hmm. and, and, and then win some races. And back to what you said before, if you don't have minority participants at either the mechanic or the driver or the owner at the grassroots level, how are we ever going to get to the point where they're able to matriculate up into higher levels of racing? You know, yeah. It, it, it's it's um it, it's it's a catch twenty two right because yeah it's some you know there's not the people in the higher ranks that can give the money down to the grassroots to start the system it has to sort of it's really difficult to to break through that yeah systemic. and there's a lot of uh, and, and there's a lot still there's a lot in general and in my experience my father's experience there's still a lot of African Americans that are afraid to interact with white people. Mm. I mean, it sounds crazy. But no, and, and it is even yeah. even at the professional level, uh, highly educated, blue collar, skilled trades level. Like what we did, walking around in shops and going through doors. They're African American. They're afraid. They they don't want to go through the door. Hey, well, I don't know them, and I don't want to go in. I don't know what to say. Right. Um, and I'll give you an example <clears throat> over on the television side. My father and I had an ally and a friend that was African-American. He was an NBC television camera operator for the NBC Nightly News in New York. Mm-hmm. Wow. And he did stuff out in the field in the city of New York for NBC with the camera truck and all that stuff that makes national news. So we're down at, and he's originally from North Carolina, but he had been living in New York for 30 some years or something. So we're down at Concord, and his name was Bobby. And I said, Bobby, um, they're filming the race because it's going to be on Time Warner Cable. They run it every week, these Saturday night races at Concord, like on Tuesday nights. I think it was like Channel 12. Um, forgot what it was in Concord. So you got two camera guys, TV guys in the TV van and they're from North Carolina. And he was afraid to approach the van to ask them how we can get a VHS tape Hmm. to Hmm. buy. And I said, Bob, he says, why don't you, this is what you say. I said, well, you're the camera guy. Right. Camera guy. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, I don't work TV camera. You ask him. Oh, no, no, no. I see you've got to be kidding me. Right. And then I go to the van. Everybody's polite. I tell them what I want, and I get the tape. You pay 10 bucks. He was afraid to talk to the two North Carolinian TV. I don't know TV lingo. Right. And then I had other things to do. I don't want to – you're the TV guy. <laughs> you know, you get the tape. So if you're – 
So if you don't have the, the, the confidence and the comfort to interact, that, that's not going, you're not going to, you're not making it. Right. Now, had it been, and I, Travis, I hadn't forgot you get a question, but again, the, the more we talk, the more things. Had it been two black guys from North Carolina, do you think you'd have been comfortable? Or was it. Yes. And okay. that's another thing you brought up that you identify. I forgot I live this every day and I forgot. If it's black on black, there's a comf- there's a hundred percent comfort level, hmm. and in some some African Americans have a split personality. They'll talk looser and different to another African American, but talk more serious hmm. and stiff upper lip with a white person. Mm-hmm. But see, Lenny, think- this is this is the fascinating type of conversation that people between races. And we're doing it here on a podcast, but this is the type of on. We all say we want an honest conversation about race, but we don't get the chance to sit down and have these conversations like this. I I think Michael and I are staring at each other like mm-hmm. had no idea that that people felt that way, you know. But but to be able to sit here and ad- admit, you know, there are white people that sometimes get a little nervous around black people, and there are black people mm-hmm. that sometimes get a little nervous yeah. around white people. Yeah. Well, you know what. That's okay to feel nervous, and it's so you know we, we. But if we don't ever acknowledge those feelings, how are we ever going to get to the point where we can work through them? You know, and I, and I think yeah, I appreciate I your transparency I, I, and honesty. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I I don't know. The only way you can do it, which is not a good idea, <laughs> you'd have to have World War Three. Yeah, where everybody's in the U.S. Army, all races, all socioeconomic levels in a foxhole together, you know, Battle of the Bulge in Germany, you'll get to know each other real quick. But other than that, society's still segregated, not so much by race, it's segregated by socioeconomic status. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. You know, and they don't know, and and they don't, not comfortable, and then my father and I, we get frustrated because we're like a thousand percent comfortable, we're goal-oriented, Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to get the car. I, I mean, I can't deal with all that stuff. How, how would you, how are you going to make it? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't think a lot of people would be comfortable d- doing this. I don't think there's probably too many, you know, NASCAR racing podcasts that are they're having this discussion, and it's not. You know, we didn't know what we were getting into, but it was something we we felt like we wanted to that we wanted to know more about. It was fascinating to us. We need this is a story that needs to be told. It's uh, you know, to Andrew's point, it's a conversation. More of these conversations need to be had, and you know, I think we're being frank and honest with each other and res- and respectful, underlined respectful, and then we can make some progress. But you know, unfortunately, we're there are probably not too many people that are going to have this conversation. Maybe we'll start something. Maybe yeah. this maybe this lights a spark in the in the world of racing, or like, oh my gosh, look look at this! What are these guys doing? What what? Why don't we do this more often? Well, why don't we? We should. Yeah, right. should why right. not? There's right. no reason we shouldn't. Um, Travis, you've been waiting patiently. Yeah. So I want to take you back to last year, uh, specifically. Well, we'll start at Martinsville. Uh, June 10th, Bubba Wallace comes out to driver intros wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Fast forward to, I believe it was the weekend after that, or maybe the weekend before, I can't remember. NASCAR comes out and says that the Confederate flag will no longer be permitted to be flown at its racetracks. Fast forward a week later to Talladega on Sunday June 21st, there is a 
what they thought was a noose found in Bubba Wallace's garage stall. And it turns out that it wasn't. And then on Monday, the race was rained out. They ran it Monday. The drivers pulled together, pushed Bubba's car to the front of the grid. I know that's a lot, but what were your initial reactions to all of those things? And then have those reactions changed some a year later now that you've had time to process all the, all of that yeah so the you know so the the, the flag the the confederate flag <clears throat> i mean when we raced down in the grassroots areas in the 90s i mean the flag would be around you would see them on the trucks and license plates mm-hmm. and that's part of the that's part of the environment so the so that from an african-american perspective the flag is offensive because it, it's a symbol and, and the symbol, maybe the symbol is different, but from the African-American point of view, it's, it's, it has like racial undertones mm-hmm. because it was the flag in the civil war and all of that. So they get, it's, it's, it's offensive. So I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised when you first heard about the noose. And then it seems like during the investigation, that noose was there for like a year or so. Um, so I changed a little bit in saying, you know, unless he had the same garage all the time, I think, you know, the noose was there all the time. And then I thought NASCAR had, I thought they had banned the Confederate flag like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then they were kind of using this as a platform to kind of renew it and say, Oh geez, we, 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 we banned this flag and they, they kind of announced it, you know, uh, again, again, um, the, the black lives matter. That's a political, it's, it's, it's just like the flag. Some people, to me, the black lives matter means black lives matter to T O O right. Not white people don't matter. The police don't matter. And you can't have society without police. We're fooling ourselves. Minneapolis proved that. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> talking about, have- we know when the, the city council decided they were going to do the community policing initiative, which sounds good on paper, but like you say, you got to have real police or yeah. there's issues, and, and right? Then, and then, yeah. And then, you know, I want to sound like an elitist, but <clears throat> you get into these, breaking the color barriers uh, in anything, whether it's business or sport. Typically, like if you go back to Jackie Robinson and baseball, the reason why he was selected by Branch Rickey, I mean, he was a great baseball player. And at UCLA, he was equally as good as track and field, football, basketball. But Branch Rickey selected him because he was a college graduate. He was an officer in the Army, mm-hmm. and he was sophisticated. So they both knew that when they put Jackie Robinson out there at that time in the 40s, they're going to be calling him all kind of things, N-word, threatening his life, which they did, threaten his wife. And he had to have the sophistication to pick his battles and the sophistication to arc- articulate his views where the points get across, but not throwing a flamethrower all the time. Right. And that comes with a lot of education and sophistication. Bubba Wallace, I'm not sure if he's quite that sophisticated to articulate his views and deal with problems and get all the facts 
before you just start blasting stuff, you know, out on out on the airways. And, and I and think f- for him too, like you say, he's not he's he's probably not got the education that some other you know historical athletes have had. But a lot of those athletes, you know, Jackie Robinson didn't have Twitter and Facebook and oh yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. to Bubba's defense, well, so that intensified that intensified yeah, it intensifies it. I think I think Bubba. Given everything in the last year and the absolute mm-hmm. microscope he mm-hmm. is under, I mean, I think all things considered, it, it, from my perspective, you may feel differently, but I, I feel like he's done a no. He didn't ask for this mantle. Surely he knew that if he was ever to make it in the Cup Series, this would be something he would have to be burdened with. But he, I think, you know, he's still a young man, and he's he's handling it. I think about as well as anybody could handle it, given all of the, you know, media circus and. Last year with the with the riots and the the George Floyd situation and all that and, and we oh, were yeah, all yeah. hung up with a pandemic and now the noose and you know it's hard you reflect back a little differently now but at the time it was a it was a powder keg uh, is is and, and on that social media I look at some of those uh, articles on on this subject with Bubba Wallace and you look at the fan responses ninety mm. percent of them are hostile oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's rough. Well, you we know, when, when no the last couple races, but it's, but it's rough. The, the last couple races we've been to, I mean, e- even with partial crowds, I mean, they introduce Wallace and half the crowd boos, you yeah, know, and yeah. it's not booing like they used to boo Jeff. Go- well, it is kind of like they used to boo Jeff Gordon in the sense that he wasn't, quote unquote, one of them. But it still surprises me today. And it's, it underscores for me how how we have still have quite a long way to go, not only in this country, but in NASCAR as a sport. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned about you were the you guys, and I want I want to underscore this point. You guys were the first African American owners to win a championship in a NASCAR sanctioned series, and you felt like that that NASCAR didn't particularly recognize that, and you didn't particularly feel included in their diversity program. Would you be willing to speak about that a little bit and your feelings on that matter? Yeah, yeah, and it gets back to what we talked about early. My father and I, we really didn't want to be part of a program the way it's designed because it's designed at least at that time to be controlled Mm -hmm. where you just kind of do what they tell you to do. Don't speak up. Don't say anything. Um, we're going to just put you in the press. You know, we didn't really want, we didn't really want that. And the reason why we weren't recognized because we weren't in the program and we were just independent, just like any other team, and NASCAR, they, they, Brian France, he, he didn't, he didn't like that. And Brian France, we first interacted with him in 1999, Washington D.C. That's when Jesse Jackson had the right. this big symposium. And Brian, I was there. My father was there. Brian France was there. And Brian France was very nervous because you know you got Jesse Jackson. And geez, he doesn't want the tracks and NASCAR picketed. It's very right. unsettling. And then, uh, and my father and I, we spoke and asked questions and we're outspoken, but they want at the time, Brian France, he just wanted, he don't, he didn't want you to be outspoken or speak up, like going through the issues. Like we went through tonight on the podcast, he just wanted you to be under control. Right. And then at that time they grabbed Bill Lester Mm -hmm. at 40 years old. I think he was with uh, Bobby Hamilton yep. in the trucks, Bill Davis, 
Mm-hmm. Then the sponsors, because I, I think all this was done in the back room with Brian Fance. They would get a few sponsors. They would change every few races to keep uh, Bill Lester going. And then that diversity program, I could be off a year, but it started like 2003, 2004. And that was basically to keep everything quiet and keep, you know, they don't want the, the civil rights organization or Jesse Jackson attacking NASCAR. It, it's, it, it almost seems... In, in- you know, I'll be honest, I've not done the research into that program as I, I should have. But you, it, at that time in, in the United States, there was a lot of, and we touched on it with corporate America, there was a lot of, well, if I just put enough money in lip service to this thing, it will not become a problem as opposed to trying to become a solution. And it sounds right. like that's sort of how you feel about it. It's, you, okay, better than nothing, good that you're at least on the surface addressing it, but it doesn't look like it's going to solve the problem that we've talked about earlier in the, in the discussion. And, and the, and the trick there is for a a NASCAR to sanctioning body. Humpy Wheeler was interested, genuinely interested in African-American drivers since the sport, you need sponsors to operate. So Mm -hmm. even when my father and I talked to Humpy Wheeler and you look around the racetrack, well, he has to fill in all his billboards. He's got to have title sponsors for all the races. Yep. I think we're even there. They had a small water tower outside of the speedway. He had Wendy's on that. Well, that's all sponsorship. So he can't say, hey, gentlemen, come in. I know you're late model. Let me try to get you a million bucks over a few years because right. he needs the million bucks. This stuff, it's, it's hard. And then at the time, uh, him and Bruton Smith – I forgot the name of their the Speedway Corporation, whatever that they're Speedway, Speedway Motorsports. Motorsports yeah. yeah, Speedway Motorsports. It went public. Right. So mm-hmm. he can't be giving away dollars and helping you get a sponsor. He needs he needs the sponsorship. So and then we all know that if you have forty cars in a cup race, there's at least three hundred to five hundred white drivers throughout america that are good enough to qualify in that on that 40 on sunday right and they don't get enough sponsorship so if they find out you have a diversity program and brian france or nascar or a humpy wheeler went out and as an agent and got sponsorship for a black driver or a team or teams, there would be a major backlash because yeah. like, hey, well, you know, I, I've been racing for ten years, and my son's been racing, and we mortgaged a house and everything that everyone does, sacrifices, and now you're going to just give them money, right? And and then that's I don't know how to solve that problem. Yeah, that's if, a- if you if you if you went that route, that's dicey, right? And I think big time motorsports is still whether white, black, or any other race you if you don't have dollars um it's difficult no matter what other talent or thing you have i mean especially you look at you know indycar formula one nascar cup you don't get there are very few people that have drive uh, have rides based on talent alone right you've got to have those big corporate backers yeah so up in virginia like manassas in the early 90s uh hermie sadler oh yeah would come through Manassas and he would race down through Southern Virginia, South Boston into North Carolina. And then his brother, Elliot Sadler came on some years later, but I know his parents, they owned these slip in. They were either convenience stores or truck stops down in Southern Virginia, where they were from Emporia, Virginia. So 
those family businesses definitely can can comfortably finance a right. late model. Right. And that's what we're talking about. Like African American, they don't have the business, they don't have anything to work with, and then if the ones that do, they're sending their kids to medical school. That's right. They, or, or the sad, yeah, the Sadlers, they they and and Hermie Sadler, he could. I, I mean, I like he he could drive. They had that Virginias for lovers, that Bush yep, car. That's right. I mean, he did some good driving back then. He had a nice personality. Um, but the but they had the family business working for them, and that's you know pretty much what you just what you just out what you just outlined. Lydia, we we really appreciate your time. We're we've been going on for a conversation for quite a while here. If you wouldn't mind indulging us in one more question each, and then and then we'll let you go. Okay, that sounds good. So you mentioned Tiger Woods a couple different times in the book, and and I think one of the neat things for for people is you tell some stories about you know Jackie Robinson and Tiger Woods and that kind of thing. Tiger Woods brought golf to a whole new audience, um, you, you know, in the late nineties, <clears throat> early two thousands, but there hasn't been a huge influx of minority golfers for, for reasons that we won't go into, but are probably very similar to that of NASCAR and other auto racing a few years. And you mentioned you, you have it in the timeline in your book in 2007, Lewis Hamilton becomes the first formula one driver, first black formula one driver to win a championship. Now he's got seven, which is unbelievable. Most wins ever, most polls. I mean, the the guy's unbelievable. But again, we still don't see a whole lot of African American or minority. Well, in his case, black. Not a, he's not American. Uh, we don't see a lot of that in the grassroots. Do, do you think someone like a Hamilton or has the needle moved at all in your mind, or are we still where you no, were? No, I think we're still. Lewis Hamilton's an anomaly. Because totally right. No money. His father. Yeah, yeah. His father. They they got to go. They struggle with carts. But enough to get Lewis Hamilton when he was in his very young, he, he was winning kart races and he's very podium driver, so to speak. And then McLaren identifies him mm-hmm. and signs him at 13 and basically finances him all the way up to Formula One. Well, that's very rare. I don't right. know, except for if you get into a family situation, like we mentioned Sadler is one example out of doesn't you know they have a business and they start they get their kids and get them up as high as they can with family money and then hopefully a sponsor a team picks them up from there right but yeah so so tiger i mean uh, lewis hamilton that was very rare that happened to him and i don't think i don't think you're going to see that again um, i also especially think, with a black driver i also think there's a little bit of of the obama effect and what i mean by that is well once they're in you know, once we had a black president once we've had a, a, a Formula One champion that's black. Once we've had a Tiger Woods, you know, oh well, now there's parity, there's equality, right? You know, yeah. there's no more issues, <laughs> right? Because look, yeah. it's been successful, and sometimes I actually think that even hurts in the long run because it's like, well, why do we need to help African Americans or other minorities? You, you know, you've already got Tiger Woods and Lewis Hamilton or, or whatever. Yeah, and everything, everything's fine, and, that, and that's that's the same thing with the golf and the golf. Still, if you get an ur- in the urban areas, even though the golf courses are not too far away, they're in suburbia. It's still far enough. Yep. Um, you know, some some parent, if they're single parent, it's even harder. But even with two parents, they got to get them to the course. It's expensive. Costs a little. It costs some money. Green fees, even at a public course. Right. At the clubs, everything that takes a better part of a day by the time you get there, play and get home. And then again, if you're going to put the, be, be good at it, then you got to play golf, 
you know, yeah. every day. Well, there's a and reason they, soccer is the number one sport in the world. All you need is a ball made out of plastic bags and two places that you consider the goal, and you can play. You know, everybody right. can play it. It's a level, you know, pardon the pun, it's a level playing field for everybody, at least in terms of developing those basic skills and whether or not you love and have the passion for the game. Almost similar with basketball um, or, or football. You can learn how to run and catch and that kind of thing. But auto racing, golf, those kind of things require so much more. There's so much more of an entry, you know, quote unquote, fee to get in, right? You don't just yeah. have a go kart and a track to run it at and that kind of thing. And, you know, you and can travel. Buy, you have to, you have to, you have to like travel. Even some of the, even some of the go kart tracks. Anywhere in the country, sometimes you got to drive two hours to right. get to them. They're not just around the corner, unless you just happen to live near one. But you have to you have to get on the road. Right, Michael. Last question. Yep, I was just going to ask, uh, racing related. Uh, what are some of the favorite places that you've been? Uh, what are some of your favorite tracks? Or is there a, a race on the schedule that man, I really look forward to seeing this race? Is there a race that you haven't been to? that you'd like to go to. And I'm going to open that up to any form of racing that you'd like to delve into. It doesn't have to be NASCAR. Just speak to that. Yeah, the, yeah, the NASCAR, yeah, NASCAR, I have been to several of the big cup races um, at Charlotte. I've been out to Phoenix and I, you know, I like all those, all those tracks. And it seems like NASCAR though has a, has the best flavor when you're in North Carolina, like the heart of the industry. <laughs> it just has a different buzz. It has a better buzz than most plays, even Georgia. Like it's just, I don't know, North Carolina's the heart right. of the industry. It's where the shops are located. It's just something about the feel of it. And then a track that I haven't been that I'd like to go to would be Monaco. Oh, South I'll go with you. <laughs> Let's all rent to, a yacht. <laughs> I, yeah, I have to fill up my five coffee cans with $100 bills That's to make right. it. But, <laughs> but that would be a place I'd like to go at least one time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think we can concur with that. Yeah, agreed. All right, thanks for answering that. Travis. My last question is, do you think that the sanctioning body of NASCAR is doing enough to include African-Americans either as fans or as competitors? And if not, what needs to be done? Yeah, it's like I said we were talking about earlier. I think we have to get more, which is a hard, it's a tall order for all the problems we've been discussing for over an hour. They need multiple drivers. Mm-hmm consistently in the various levels you know from grassroots all the time you just can't have one driver in the top three series mm-hmm. and and then they got the controversy around it, it it's 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 not an, it's not enough mm-hmm. and that's what they need to do i think they've included and i'm not sure but it seems from what i've read over the last five years they do have some black employees in various capacities and maybe they're in diversity i i don't know and and so there's a handful there, but you'd need to really pull the fans and make people feel comfortable. They need to have the drive more drivers behind the wheel at all the levels. And I, I mean, that's hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Sure. It, 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 I of, think I think it's going to be kind of generational. I mean, you, you, you talk about not, Wendell Scott not getting the trophy in 1963 after he beat, I believe, Buck Baker. And then a generation later, you take a black driver down and Buck says he could do the job. You know that's some transformation there within, a, but it took a generation. Oh yeah, oh, it, took, yeah. it took a generation, and I think I think unfortunately, 
the seeds that you were sowing in the 90s are starting to potentially bear some fruit in terms of you know recognition within the sport and and maybe by the time Michael and my kids are our age you'll be looking out on the NASCAR field and seeing you know 20 you know 20 white guys uh, 12 hispanic guys and eight black guys kind of essentially the makeup of the country right that that would be sort of the ideal <laughs> right yeah yeah that's and, the idea but um, it can't happen on its own we all have to push and and find ways to support the inclusion and 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 also for motorsports inclusion as a whole right i mean it's a very expensive business regardless of your race but if we can get if we can get a whole new set of communities being interested and like you said, the the sound and the noise and the smells that can only do good things for not only sport and NASCAR but motorsport as a whole. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we see a lot of a lot more um, African Americans as crew members um, and working in that. You know, which is I think that you've got some work in the shops, but when they're on the cruise, there's a, there's some TV time, there's some FaceTime there, and that's yeah. you know like oh that there's a there's a black crew member, there's a there's a black a uh, front tire changer. There's a you know a black gas man, etc. And it's like you know you and there's more of that. You see a little bit more of that each year, and they're capable, very capable. And right. I'd say I'd say you know Dr Pepper for one. I guess they got they're comfortable again with yeah because they're because they're Bubba. back and with <laughs> Bubba Wallace. So you yeah, you know you true, guys yeah. uh, great laid the groundwork for that as Andrew alluded to years ago. And uh, listen, they came back, and I know that uh, Michael Jordan being involved helps with that. But I mean, Bubba's no slouch; he can try. He can drive. He's yeah, talented. yeah, yeah. He's going to qualify for all the races. And sure. Run. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah, but I, I think I think you're right. Got to have more coming up uh, early and getting involved. And I, and to Andrew's point again, I think that uh, you know when our kids are our age, I think it'll be you know we'll see a little bit different. You know, the fans on the fan side of thing, I, it was unfortunate. I, I think it was at uh, Charlotte. I don't think it was at Texas. There was something I saw, and maybe it was on Twitter. Some there was some guy in the stands wearing an Obama sucks shirt, and right behind him, I mean, literally the row right behind was an African American family. And I'm like, <laughs> that is, we've got to. Are you serious? It Why are you crazy. wearing that to a NASCAR race? And how? I mean, how unlucky was that family to be sitting behind that guy? Yeah, but I bet he felt but, so uncomfortable. But I'm sure, and I hope he did. I do, too. I hope he did. And we've got to stop doing crazy, stupid, ignorant things like that. It's just no, there's no place for it. I will it's say where to, I'm encouraged, to, though. You know what encouraged me about that scene is 25 years ago when you and I started going to races, do you know how many black families we saw in the stands? That's true. Zero. Yeah, none. Right? none. And, yeah. and so sure. that... I, it's a two-sided coin. Yep. You know, so yep. while that guy hopefully stewed in it for three sure. hours, the good news is a black family felt comfortable enough and in love motorsport and enough. I, and maybe yes. one of those two kids or three kids will go and do something in motorsport. And, right. And hopefully that shirt did not deter them from coming back again. I hope not. You know, for I sure. Not. But uh, Lenny, I, I, we this has been... It's been exceptional. Again, we didn't know what we were getting into. Uh, we neither know, did you, and, and neither did you. But thank you for being willing yeah. to come on with us. And oh so, yeah, yeah. I know. I know we would have a good con- conversation, and, and, and the point of view is different. Some of the details, yes, uh, yeah, are eye are eye opening. It's just amazing. for sure, absolutely, yeah. And so the book is "Racing While Black: How an African American Stock Car Team Made 
its mark on NASCAR, and it's been in hardcover for quite some time, and then just released in paperback. Is that is that correct? Yeah, paperback comes out next month, July twenty first. Okay, and if I know Andrew well, you read this book probably. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Yep. You can, um, and it's. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, yes. you can get it on all of the digital platforms. Um, and it's a it's a good read. You, you you know it's a it's a you tell it in a it's not a um, a book written in sort of an academic way. I don't mean that in an offensive way. And what I mean is that you tell it in the in the way that the story unfolds. It's and it's a it's a it's oh, almost yeah, like, like a novel. You, yeah. feel, yeah, like you feel like you're there. Like you, it's you a page. Like you're there. Yeah, it's yep. it's it's really mm-hmm. really. Uh, really I t- wrote it. I wrote it at a time when every the details were fresh in my mind. Oh, like the- we got down there to Concord '94. I started writing in '99. I had it finished in 2000, but it didn't come out till 2010. Getting a book published is like racing. I mean, you got to pitch it. If, yep. if you've never written a book, the, the publisher's like, "Well, how do we? How are you going to sell books?" Right. And you have to. Nobody go knows your name. That. But I did have it fresh, and then I enjoyed the journey that we were on and the people that we met and some of the characters we met. I mean, it was a a journey for us, and we we, we liked it down there. We were just – we needed more sponsorship from corporations. We weren't worried about the tracks or NASCAR. We we need the corporate sponsorship. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you broke down some walls. You made some progress, and, and and you were brave enough and courageous enough as a family to come and do that when it took a lot of courage to do that. So, you know, we yeah. applaud your your efforts and your family's efforts, and we, you know, are glad that you did it. I, I had to stay away from that sweet tea and the fried chicken <laughs> yeah. down there, Ryan's, Ryan's, Ryan's buffet. That's oh, the Ryan's, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that Ryan's. That that yeah. That uh, was that that chicken pot pie they used to have mm-hmm. at Ryan's. Man, I yeah. could just make a. A meal out of that I eat way and too the, much. And, of the, that and the sweet and the sweet iced tea. The You're halfway through with a glass. The waitress and let me give you some more. Let me give you more. And and, <laughs> and, and, and you get addicted to it. That's, that's yeah, and and sure. I will say, um, we all three hail from Mooresville, which I know you're very familiar with, having been down oh, yeah. here. But but yeah. really appreciated that that uh, even though our sleepy little town uh, isn't much, you gave it quite a nice description. And uh, oh yeah, and that's then the uh, you, where the shops are. Yeah, and you yep. talked about uh, going to uh, to that uh, chassis setup seminar. Oh, I yeah. think. Performance Boulevard and uh, yeah. going to uh, I'm assuming it was Lancaster's Barbecue because you talked about having parts on the wall and all that kind of stuff. So kind of neat to read about our hometown in a published book. Oh yeah, book. yeah, it was, yep. it was, uh, it was. I mean, some of those restaurants where the regulars would come in, you get out of the car and the waitresses had been there for some years. Oh, here comes Bob. They start setting up the iced tea <laughs> and maybe and maybe and maybe the barbecue sandwich the way he likes it because they come in like every day or every other day. Uh-huh. Before you get to the front door, I said, "Man, you don't see this up north. Not <laughs> yeah. like this." <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, come back anytime if you're ever in the area. Please let us know, and uh, okay, yeah, we'd love we'll to spend do. some more time with you. I feel like this conversation could go on even yeah. further, but you know, we appreciate the time that you've given us. Uh, very, you've been very gracious, and um, and again, just thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to promote, share out uh, with our audience? While no, got I think you, you have everything covered. Um, you got the book where they can get the book at Racing Wild Black on Amazon. That's all. And I'm just thankful that you guys spent the time, the hour and a half with me uh, on oh, the yeah. podcast. Oh yeah, we appreciate your yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, have a all great right, evening and hopefully, our, yeah, thanks and hopefully we'll uh, cross paths again uh, down the road. And if you're ever down for a race or any other thing, uh, let's, let's definitely get together. We'd lo- okay. love to meet you all in right. person. All right, thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. All right, thanks. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye.
We'd like to thank Lenny Miller for joining us tonight. That was a great, enlightening interview that we had with him, and we hope that you enjoyed it as well. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, Texas, boys. It was hot in Texas, both on the racetrack and via the ambient temperature. Um, all-star race on Sunday night, ho-hum. Kyle Larson wins again. He won the week prior at Sonoma. Can he be stopped? I mean, he really should not have won that race, in my opinion. But uh, Why do you say that? Why do you think he should? What, what, where's that coming from? What do you mean? Well, I, I just think that um, he wasn't, when the, you know, when that last stage started, or that last segment started, I didn't think that he was not my pick. I, I, I really thought that Chase Elliott would be able to hold on to it. I did too, but he, he made a move to the, was the inside or outside? I can't, it was, an, no, it I was, think it was the outside because the outside. something it was, about him getting up in the cushion or something like, that was a dirt term. Yeah. That I, you know, do remember from the Chili Bowl, and not many people would try that, but it worked for him, and he held on to it. And I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it was given to him. No. I think he, I think he went out and took the damn thing. And um, I, but but he's going to keep doing it until somebody stops him. Yeah, I, for I, sure. I well, that, and let's also not you ask if he could be stopped. He he didn't blow the field away the first ten weeks. What's changed? Well, I think that team's finally gelled, so they are going to be better. We're talking about Texas and Charlotte. They're both dog leg ovals. I mean, of course, yeah. he runs well on one, he's going to run well on the other. And who did he beat? A Hendrick teammate. So yeah. it, it, I, let, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think it would be foolish to say he's not in the final four at the end. But we saw with Kevin Harvick last year, just because you're the best driver with the best team that year doesn't mean that you're guaranteed. Um, I do like his diversity. He won Sonoma, second at Coda. Yeah, but again, yeah. but again, two road courses, two dog leg ovals. Sure. You know, th- yeah. So, so let's see Martinsville. Let's see Pocono. I, I agreed. Yes. And and, yes. and so what I mean is, you yep. can't win them all. Sure. I do. He has won top ten every week, so I'm not taking that away from him. But you know, don't count out. This is not 1995. If it was, it'd be a two horse race for the title. It's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, do, do I think can he can be yeah. stopped? Of course we, I do. Of course I do. And I just want to go back to uh, Sonoma just for a second. Guys, the the performance that Kyle Larson has been putting on the last couple of weeks, Denny Hamlin's points lead has been cut by more than half. And he still hasn't won a race. I, now, I'm not concerned. He's going to make the playoffs. But it's just it's it's interesting that he hasn't won yet. And that his points lead keeps getting cut. So maybe you should ask the same question you asked about Kyle Larson a few yeah. weeks ago. Uh, is there something wrong with Kyle Larson? Uh, yeah. Is there well, something wrong with Denny Hamlin? Go ahead and put him on the win streak. Do it, Do it, Travis. Give well, him, give him the, I'm just wondering. No, no, I, I'm just wondering, <laughs> is there something wrong? Because oh, No, I don't. I think, I think it's just a handful of races. And, and I think he's spread very thin. He also he spread thin. I'm yep. sure that's part of it. We mentioned that in the interview, but yeah, no, I think it's like a baseball season. You're going to have months that just don't go very well. It's a long season. Sure. It, if this was again 1995, yeah, I'd be really concerned. But if he wins three rate, two or three races before the playoffs, he'll be just fine. Yeah, he'll be just fine. Yeah. And right now, it's not just Kyle Larson. It's that entire Hendrick, Hendrick stable. Yes, I mean all they four of them. And, and Kyle Busch. And Kyle yeah. Busch is finding his way to get sprinkled in there. Uh, you know, a little bit here and there, but Hendrick uh, they, has Hendrick just replaced is, Stuart Haas from last sure. year. And that's, the only, that's what happened. Yeah, until there's a rule change, you know, I think we're and uh, or whatever affected 
and we've talked about it plenty of times, whatever affected the Stuart Haas guys and, and whatever Harvick. So speaking of Harvick, did you see the grave digger? Coming out in Nashville. Yeah, he's yeah. coming. Yeah. That's, that's going to be cool. But, you know, maybe they should spend a little less time on uh, designs and a little more time getting that number four in the wind. But, but wind let's think about know. where we were last year. Everybody said sure. Harvick's the guy. And if I had asked either of the two of you or most of NASCAR Nation if Chase Elliott was going to win the title, who would have raised their hand? Nobody. Yeah. So so don't don't count Denny Hamlin out. No. Even if no. he makes it in with just two or three wins, don't count him out. As long All he's got to do is get in the field at Phoenix. So a question on the all-star race and then one more point and we'll put it to bed and move on to the Xfinity series. I found it interesting. I heard over the weekend that Rodney Childers said that this was the first car that he had been able to put what he wanted to put into it. It didn't work. Um, I don't I don't read a lot into it because it was an all-star race and I think that they maybe were trying some setup things, but I'm 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 con- I'm concerned about Harvick and I'm concerned about Stuart Haas. Thoughts? Well, Stuart Haas hasn't run well, particularly well all year. I think some of the tweaks they made have cost them a lot of downforce. I think if you look at where Harvick was successful last year, it was at tracks that were high downforce tracks, and I think he smoked them. No, I, I mean, again, maybe it's not going to be their year, but everybody's going to get reset next year. So, mm-hmm. to be honest, if mm-hmm. I'm Rodney, I don't. I mean, I throw whatever at it because the le- I mean, I applaud him for trying something. The different. only thing you got is time on is is Kevin Harvick's age and how much longer mm-hmm. he wants to do this. Yeah, yeah. But for Rodney, he's not going to hang it up at forty five. That's you know, crew chiefs. He he may not want to be on the road every week, but right. he's not going to stop racing like and, and retire. Right. I do want to ask though, what do you guys think about it being in Texas and not on? The week before the 600. Is it good? Change it? What do you do? I don't have a problem with it not being the week before the 600, but I don't think it needs to be. It needs to move around every year. And I think it needs to go to places that NASCAR doesn't hold an actual sanctioned race at. Um, Like, for instance, run it at Stafford. You know, they proved proved this past weekend with the SRX series, which, by the way, if you didn't watch that, watch it this weekend. It's phenomenal. Uh, They proved that they can put on a heck of an event. And Tony had them throw the caution because it got boring. Yes. (laughs) And I didn't didn't get to watch any of it, but but it sounds like it was good. um, Eldora's an option. I mean, there's a lot of different options. But no, the All Star Race doesn't need to. I don't have a problem if it if it goes to Texas eventually again, but it doesn't need to stay there. What did you think of the format? Six segments, a hundred laps. I, I I found it enjoyable to watch. It was it's a it's a gimmick race. It's a spectacle. It's you, a yeah. You know, it's it's that and it and it was that. Do you it, know it what I wish that. they could figure out? And they could do it. I wish they could figure out a way. To do like they do in golf and put a foursome together of drivers that normally compete against each other. I would love to see six cars randomly chosen with four drivers. So you know who makes the field, then you have a random draw, and let's say that there's 18 participants. Six cars, three drivers to a car, each driver drives a different segment. You know, so you, and then you start the final, and you can start a, the third, you know, second stage based on the stage one points and whatever. They're, they're, that there's some obviously fundamental issues with seat size and all that kind of stuff, but it would be really cool if you could watch. That's why people like the SRX and people why love people people loved IROC mm-hmm. is because you could put drivers and compete against each other with mm-hmm. what you knew was the same equipment. I think yeah. it would be fun to find out a way to 
team up drivers and you can't do it in their own cars because that's no fun. Mm-hmm. But to watch them like have to get in a car that's not set up for any of them, that's what makes Rolex fun. It's, it's it's not a car set up yeah, just for yeah, them. Yeah. And if Rolex can figure out how to get them in and out of a seat, why can't NASCAR? Yeah. I think that yeah, would sure. be a fun format. Sure, sure. I'd what, I'd, so, what I'd like to see, and you'll never see it, I'd like to see the playoff drivers from the Cup Series, the playoff drivers from the Xfinity Series from the previous year, and the playoff drivers from the Cup Series. So that's 30, 38 teams. They battle it out, but you have overall an overall winner and then you have an overall class winners i i think that would be oh kind of like kind of like a grand aim series kind of like the rolex i think it would be an intriguing race and i think it would give the the truck and xfinity teams something something to look forward to something to to look forward to yeah exactly um otherwise i'm I'm beginning to wonder and we'll see what happens next year if the all-star race is running its course yeah, I've thought that for some time now, actually. And um, especially when you think about, um, you know, the, the the they ran 100 laps and had to go all the way to Texas to do it. Yeah, especially if you're not an organization that has an Xfinity team already there. And if you're, if you're, if you were in the open, you only ran 50 laps. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid I, it's not interesting. In fact, it's my least favorite thing. Everybody likes the Bud Shootout because it's kind of a preview of the Daytona 500, even though they're different cars, physically different cars when they yeah. get to the next weekend. And it, we've not had racing for three months. But I, I find it boring. I don't know. Michael, what about you? Um, and just another reason drivers can get hurt. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't have anything else to add to that. It just uh, it gets a little mundane. Um, and yeah, it's another opportunity to, for folks to get hurt. I mean, yeah, I don't have anything yeah, else to add I to agree. that. I am interested to see what what transpires uh, this coming weekend. It's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. A couple more points I wanted to make. Kyle Busch wins his 99th Xfinity race. If he wins one of the next two, he's never racing again. He said, that's not true. He, he, he has backslid on that statement. Uh huh. I'm sure he has. He, well, and it, it's not him. It's actually, so Samantha. The, so no. So the car <laughs> has sponsorship sold through next season. Yeah, and he has to drive and it to keep it. he has to drive it in order to keep that sponsorship. So fans, you know, for those of you that thought, oh, he's going to win his 100th at Nashville and we'll never see him again in the Xfinity Series, eh, that's not going to happen. Well, doesn't put a lot of faith in his own abilities then because if it's five this year and five next year, he only needed three out of those ten. Well, that's true, but... He should have thought I better think, than that. I think, it, I think maybe he didn't think about that. I think that the team was like, well, he'll run them... If we have sponsorship, just give us the sponsorship. Yeah. Uh, John Hunter Nemechek wins his fourth race of the year at uh, Texas. Now, that is one, being the truck series, where we know there's not near as many competitors. Uh, who's going to beat him? I was going to say, tell me who's going to beat him. I mean... Besides himself. Well, that's the thing. It's not going to necessarily guarantee... Equipment failure or somebody yeah, bumps right. into him. The, yeah, right. Right. yeah. Sheldon gets a little the too aggressive. The only thing other than chance that's going to derail him is himself. Yeah. There's nobody or, that's got equipment or talent to or the Kyle level Bush of him. when he's yeah. racing. Well, he can't race at Phoenix. Yeah. Good. And I'm then, okay with it. Uh, one final thing I wanted to say. Kudos to NASCAR on Fox. Their portion oh, yeah. of the Cup yeah. and Xfinity yeah. season has come to a close. Uh, they did a great job. Boyer had a great first year in the booth, I thought. Um, For sure. Looking forward to the folks at NBC uh, taking over this Same weekend. crew as last year, right? Yep. Same crew as last year. 
Um, and so it, it's 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 going to be fun. It's it's almost sad because it means the season's about half over, um, which is hard to believe. But let's look ahead to Nashville. Going to miss you, Jamie Little. Well, you might see her on a truck broadcast. She might be in Nashville this weekend for the oh, truck race. Oh, that's right, FS1. Okay, yeah. I'll have to tune in then. Uh, truck race Friday night. The truck and Xfinity cars haven't been to Nashville Super Speedway, which is a mile and a third. For 10 years. Concrete track uh, in Lebanon, Tennessee. They haven't I've been, been to a horse s- show there once. I actually uh, competed in a horse show there in Lebanon, Tennessee. Yourself? I've been there. You okay. were the horse? You, I, wow. Yeah, I rode myself. Yep, <laughs> okay. Sure did. That's a whole other episode. Um, but yeah, I did. It's a quaint little town. It's uh, headquarters of Cracker Barrel as well, I believe. Okay. So yeah. the, well, that's the, interesting. So I, the I trucks... <laughs> snap it. The trucks are going to run on Friday night. The Xfinity Series is going to run Saturday afternoon, Cup Series Sunday afternoon. I don't know what we're going to see. I know that... I believe tire wear is going to be a big deal this weekend. I know the more that they run on the track, the less tire wear will become an issue. It's um, concrete surface as well. Yeah. and, and the, So it should rubber in pretty well. And the good thing is that they are going to have practice and qualifying for all three series this weekend. Um, What's so, it similar to? Dover? Similar to Dover. Yeah. But it's bigger. It's a yeah, mile and, and a it's third. And yeah. it's actually owned by, by Dover, Dover Motorsports. Yeah. How about that? So, They're the so, ones who shut it down 10 years ago. So and Alex, I recall, Alex Bowman. I recall that you know there was decent racing at this place before they closed it. That's why I was surprised it closed. I remember um, it was one of the few standalone events for the trucks in Xfinity. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where the cup was when they did it. Pocono, probably. They were typically in Pocono. Yeah, because they would do Pocono. And the yeah. trucks... There was there was one year where the trucks were in Texas, the Xfinity cars were in Nashville, and the Cup cars were in Pocono. And I want to say that Nashville got replaced by Iowa. Yeah, I believe so. And I and I believe if I'm if my memory is correct, Kyle Busch ran all three races that weekend. Um, is he running truck this weekend? He is not. He's just running Xfinity and Cup. So Truck Series Friday night eight o'clock FS1, Xfinity Series Saturday three thirty on. NBCSN and the cup race is Sunday at 3.30 on NBCSN Father's Day Sunday uh, I liked the Sunday night race for the all-star race I, I wish we would get more Sunday night racing mm-hmm. but um, agreed I uh, you know with with NBC taking over now you won't see that because of Sunday night football um, but I liked the Sunday night race yeah I, I was enjoying it I, I, I get to watch more of them for one thing um and uh, I think I, I just like them under the lights. I, I like going yeah. to races under the lights. I think it's just much more exciting. Yeah. Lebanon is a little north of Murfreesboro. Okay. Where I used to go to college. Right. MTSU. Yep, MTSU. And uh, Cedar, the Cedars of Lebanon, a well-known park around there. And I think uh, I want to say that uh, Charlie Daniels uh, was uh, lived or raised or born in that area as well. It's a very unique part of Tennessee. Uh, a lot of history there, a lot of historical areas around Lebanon. I know this is not race-related, Travis. I know uh, you love hearing about all this stuff. But uh, anyway, I, I spent a lot of time up there. So I, for me, that's part of my life. I don't get into much with you, Travis, but uh, maybe one day we will. So we're ready to make some picks. And it's exciting because the cup race is sold out. 40,000 seats, all of them are sold. Yeah, and I saw Texas is taking more grandstands down, by the way. I don't know if you saw that. And they're taking about half of them down. You know, yeah. They're going to go down to about 75,000 seats. Yeah, they can't sell it anymore. Um, That's plenty. All right, who who's going to win this weekend? I'm going to let you boys, Andrew, go first. Who won at Dover for the trucks? They didn't run. I don't think they had they trucks. They didn't run. Yeah. No, they didn't run. 
I mean, who who doesn't say Nemechek? I mean, every week. Ben Rhodes. Ben Rhodes, Austin Creed. I mean... Sheldon Creed. Austin, Austin Creed. Hill. Sheldon, Creed. Sheldon <laughs> Creed, Austin Hill. I like Austin Creed. That's good. <laughs> Austin <laughs> Creed. Oh, I'm tired. Uh, let's see. I don't know. Zane Smith? I don't know. I, 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 I honestly don't know. I, I would. I mean, does right. anybody else have a pick? Haley Diggin. Oh, I'd love that. I'd just like to get a top I 10. I think one of the Gillilands will, be, will, uh, will do well. Oh, are both in it? Ryan Priest. Whichever one is. Ryan, one. Ryan Priest is in the 17 this weekend. I'm just trying to pick something different. Um, than why is he in the 17 this weekend? Uh, I don't know. He's just running the <laughs> he 17. All right, guys. Xfinity. We are. We are at a. Kyle. We are at. A, we're get. We're getting there. We got it. This is a long show. It is. It Kyle Busch. Anybody disagree with Kyle Busch? No. What for? What's What's I, he racing? Actually, Xfinity. actually, I do. I'm taking Algar. No, I'm gonna take Kyle Busch. All right. Okay. Huh. Is, is Ty Gibbs running this one? Nope. Oh well. Um. Yeah. Austin Cindric. Okay. Who won the Cup race at Dover? The cu- uh, that was Alex Bowman. Bowman. Alex Bowman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah take it. Take a Hendrick car then. Yeah, pick, I, maybe we should take Alex. No, pick a Hendrick. The last time we took Alex in our fantasy league, he finished like 45th. I'm actually, I'm actually 40. gonna, I'm actually gonna go with uh, Martin Truex Jr. this weekend. Okay, you hadn't heard much from him lately. Maybe, the, maybe, the, yeah. or anybody else that's not Hendrick related. Yeah, somebody take Larson. Who's gonna do it? Everybody but us. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> everybody but us. All right, who you we're, we're banking Mike? on this. I, I don't know. Alex Bowman again. Why not? Okay, Andrew. I'm gonna take Byron. All right. Lord Byron. All right. Well. William. I don't have anything else. Y'all got anything else? That'll no, do it. No, it's been, a, it's been a heck of a show, man. I think we fit it all in tonight. We've got a lot of okay. a lot, a lot in there. All right. Well, enjoy the racing from Nashville this weekend. Again, remember, trucks on FS1, Xfinity, and Cup on NBC Sports Network. Yeah, NBC. And until next week, when we have a... An interesting podcast. It's a joint podcast next week with In the Marbles. My name is Travis Sherrill for Andrew Coates and Michael Colbreth. We will see you next week and enjoy the racing from Music City. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed instead of getting on the internet and checking a new hit me get up. First shot, come strut walking. A little bit of humble, a little bit of cautious. Somewhere between like Rocky and Cosby's for the game. Nope, nope, y'all can't copy up. Bad, moonwalking. And this here is our party. My posse's been on Broadway and we did it all way. Chrome music. I shed my skin and put my bones into everything I record to it. And yet I'm on. Let that stage light go and shine on down. Got that Bob Barker suit game and Plinko in my style. Money, stay on my craft and stick around for those pounds. But I do that to pass the torch and put on for my town. Trust me, on my I N D E P E N D E N T shit hustling. Chasing dreams since I was 14 with the four track bussin'. Halfway across that city with the back, 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 question. Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give that to the people, spread it across the country. Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give it to the people, spread it across the country. Here we go back, this is the moment, tonight is the night. We'll fight till it's over, so we put our hands up like the ceiling can.
damn grateful I grew up really wanna go fronts But that's what you get when Wu-Tang raised you Y'all can't stop me Go hard like I gotta hit it with in my heartbeat And I'm eating at the beat like it gave a little speed To a great white shark on shark We rock, time to go off, I'm gone Two says goodbye, I got a world to see And my girl, she wanna see Rome See so make you a believer now I never ever did it for a throne That validation comes from giving it back to the people now Sing this song and it goes like Raise those hands, this is our party We came here to live life like nobody was watching I got my city right behind me If I thought they got me Learn from that failure, gain humility And then we keep marching, yeah, I said we go back, this is the moment Tonight is the moment